All right, this week we continue our Lenten series, The Other Side of Our Savior. We believe that our Savior is fully God and fully man. And while this is hard for us to wrap our brains around, it is what Scripture tells us, and so it is what we affirm. Often we look at the miraculous things that Jesus did, the evidence of his Godhood, when we make our way through the Gospels. And in this series, we are not intending to minimize Jesus' Godhood at all. He is fully God. We are going to look behind the curtain at the other side of our Savior. How did Jesus live his life as a human? What can we, as his people, learn from him? How can we mimic him? How can his perfect rendition of the Christian walk influence our flawed and stumbling one? Last week, we saw Jesus visit the house of Simon Peter looking for fellowship and how, as they were spending time investing in each other, ministry happened. This week, we'll be continuing in the book of Mark, and our text will be found in chapter 2, verses 13 to 17. If you have your Bibles with you, please turn there now. If you don't have your Bibles with you, there should be one on the back of the pew in front of you, or you are encouraged to follow along as the words will be on the screens beside me. We read the word of the Lord this morning, Mark chapter 2, verses 13 to 17. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have, come to, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Thus ends the reading. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would speak through your word this morning. We pray that you would perform the miracle that feeds our souls. We pray this in your name. Amen. Centuries ago, a number of workmen were seen dragging a great marble block into the city of Florence, Italy. It had come from the famous marble quarries of Carrara, and it was intended to be made into a statue of a great Old Testament prophet. But it contained imperfections. And when the great sculptor Donatello saw it, he refused it at once. So it lay there in the cathedral yard, a useless block. I would imagine that situation was pretty frustrating for everybody involved. The people working in the quarry who had cut the block of marble in the first place. This was, this was a big quarry. It was famous. It was known. It had a great reputation. And so this stone is cut, and it is not small, and, and marble is not light. This is an incredibly heavy chunk of stone, and it was dragged all the way to the cathedral in Florence, Italy. I looked it up. That's 74 miles. I'm sure paths are different now than they were all that time ago, but according to the information I found online, which is like Google Maps, it projected that it would take 25 hours to walk from the marble quarry to Florence. Now take away the paved roads and add in dragging a massive block of marble, and this was an undertaking. 
This took effort. It was not easy. And you finally get to the cathedral yard. And one of the greatest artists of the day, and this is a day full of amazing artists, but one of the greatest sculptures in history that history has ever known is pacing back and forth in the, in the cathedral courtyard in anticipation, right? Waiting for this block. This is going to be his masterpiece. This is going to be a fantastic sculpture of an Old Testament prophet. It's going to exude power and potential. And then he lays his eyes on the marble. Oof. Look at all the imperfections. Disappointment causes his shoulders to sag, his eyes fall. He continues to examine this block that so much effort has been put into, so much time and money has been spent on, hoping that he can find some way to fix it, some way to make it work. But ultimately, he decides that the block of marble is beyond saving. Its blemishes are too pronounced. There is no hope for it. And so this block of marble is left to sit in the cathedral yard, and it stands as a testament to failure. It stands as a testament to the reality that some blocks of marble just can't be saved. Much to the frustration and chagrin of those that have invested so much time, effort, money, and energy into them. Who had such high expectations for what they could have become. Sometimes I wonder if that's how the Pharisees saw the tax collectors. A big, massive waste of potential. They were Jews. They, they had been invested in since they were little kids. They had been taught since they were young, and yet they had not reached the potential in the eyes of the church, at least, that they were capable of. The Pharisees declared tax collectors as sinners, right there alongside prostitutes, swindlers, and thieves. Now, sinners is a technical term the Pharisees used to describe those that they felt were inferior because they had no interest in scribal tradition. They knew about the Jewish traditions, right? These sinners, they knew about them. They, they just didn't follow them. They didn't eat with ceremonial cleanness. They spent time hanging out with, sharing a meal with, working for, and in some cases, servicing Gentiles. A declaration of being a sinner by a Pharisee resulted in a person or a profession becoming social pariahs, social outcasts in the Jewish world. You weren't supposed to hang out with these people. They were bad news. Of course, it didn't take much convincing for the general Jewish populace to agree that tax collectors were bad news. Typically, when I have thought of those the Pharisees labeled sinners, I had thought of people that were less fortunate. People who have had to enter their profession because there was nowhere left for them to turn, no other way that they could support themselves. The, the leper, the prostitute, even in some cases the thief, those that the traditional community had failed to take care of or protect and then had ostracized for the behavior the sinner had resorted to so that they might eat and have a shelter over their head. And while that may be true for some that lived in the Red Quarter, some that the Pharisees haughtily deemed as sinners, it was not true of the tax collector. Becoming a tax collector was incredibly intentional. These guys paid big bucks. They bid for the right to extort people of their money. We may get frustrated, right, with paying taxes, the IRS, and how much money the government takes from us, and, and then what they decide to use it for. And I think a lot of that is justified. I love the joke that tells of a theoretical conversation between an IRS agent and a citizen. Citizen says, so I recognize that I have to pay taxes. I'm not happy about it, but okay. How much am I supposed to pay? And the IRS agent responds, oh, I don't know. 
Here's a complex set of rules that will help you figure that out. The citizen takes the rules, reads them over, is pretty confused by some of them, and so he asks the agent, now this is, this is a lot, all right? What happens if I get the number wrong? To which the agent responds, ah, you just go to jail, it's fine. Like, does our system make any sense? I have to figure out how much I owe, and if I'm wrong, I'm penalized? If they could figure it out to tell me I'm wrong, couldn't they have figured it out in the first place? I don't know, I don't get it, but at least there are rules, right? They change, but whatever, like they're there. And there were rules in the first century as well, but they were Roman rules. One of them was that you were taxed if you were alive, right? You lived in a Roman-controlled area. If you drew breath, you were taxed. And there were income taxes, you know, that kind of thing, but it was all laid out pretty clearly. You knew how much you were supposed to pay for those things. That's not where the tax collectors made their money. For you see, Rome only cared that they got their share of their taxes, but the tax collectors were unregulated. So as long as Rome was getting their chunk of flesh, the tax collectors could tax whatever else they liked and still enjoy Roman protection and enforcement. There are public records of tax collectors walking down a public road and demanding taxes for use of the road from random people that were also walking down the road. They would arbitrarily come up with a tax. If the, if the Jew they were extorting refused, Roman soldiers would then back the tax collector. And then, they would, and then they would, on top of that, extort people, right? They would knowingly tax a person beyond what that person could pay and then loan them the money to pay the debt only to now enforce the loan and future taxes. Tax collectors in the first century were less like the IRS and more like organized crime. And the Jewish people, understandably, hated them for it. And then along comes Jesus. He just spent the day by the lake in front of a large crowd teaching them, and he may be tired, right? He may be worn out, but Jesus isn't done pushing against societal norms. No, he's just begun. For as he walks past Levi, sitting in his tax collector's booth, Jesus looks at this declared sinner, the extortionist, the man who is despised by his people and defined by his greed, and Jesus says to him, follow me. Who do you think, who do you think was most surprised? by these words of Jesus. Some might argue Levi, who, as many of us may have guessed, will end up having his name changed and is the author of the first book in our New Testaments, the Gospel of Matthew. But this guy knows who he is. He knows what he's done. He's well aware of his sin. He's, he's built his life around the extortion of his people. He's gotten in bed with the enemy. He's a traitor. He's an agent of Rome, a global power that is intentionally subjugating his own people in order that he might line his own pockets. He's not chosen an admirable profession. He's an outcast, a wealthy one. A wealthy one, but an outcast just the same. And this teacher, this leader of men, this wise man of humble means, is asking Matthew to give up all the wealth, all the power, all the, the prestige that he has sacrificed so much for and follow him? Where? For what purpose? To sit under his teaching? To walk around in the hot sun all day? To feel the gnaw of hunger in his stomach? To feel weary and tired? To give up the stability for an uncertain future? Yeah, I would think that Matthew was surprised, and yet our text this morning tells us that he got up, left his collector's booth, and followed Jesus. 
If that isn't a testament to the call of God on a person's life, I'm not sure what is. Jesus didn't care about the public perception of who Matthew was. He didn't care that Rome saw him as a lackey they used to keep the Jewish people under their thumb. Jesus didn't care that Matthew was shunned from upstanding Jewish society. Jesus didn't let the sin of Matthew's past and the sin of his future get in the way of his love and his plan for him. And so Jesus called Matthew into his band of close friends, close followers, and Matthew answered the call of the Lord. That's pretty powerful stuff. That is pretty awesome truth for us to hear this morning, a pretty awesome message of hope. Because we may not be tax collectors, but each and every one of us is a sinner. We've all done things that have hurt people, and we've all done things that could cause decent society to question if we should be welcome in it. Maybe there are things from our distant past. Maybe they are things that we did recently. For some of us, they are things in our future. But let this story of Matthew encourage us for like, encourage us. For like Matthew's sin, our sin does not stop our God from loving us or calling us into relationship with him. And we see the other side of our Savior as Jesus carried that relationship into the evening meal where he sat around the table with Matthew and with Matthew's friends, the other degenerates of the first century Jewish world. He's rubbing shoulders and hanging out with known and celebrated sinners. And so some could argue that the ones most surprised by Jesus' calling Matthew to join him were the Pharisees. They find out that Jesus is whining and dining, conversing with this group of materialistic, compromising degenerates, and they can't figure it out. Who is this guy? What in the world is his angle? Doesn't he know who he's associating with? Doesn't he get that this doesn't look good? If he's pushing for religious or political power, He's going about it in some awfully backward ways. He's supposed to be a teacher. He's been espousing scripture and its teachings and shocking with shocking clarity and knowledge. He's challenged them. He's challenged tradition. He's a somewhat dangerous even. So why is he jeopardizing all of the power he's been accumulating by sitting and eating and rubbing shoulders with known sinners? And so to get to an answer, they approach Jesus' disciples and ask, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And you know what, church? I bet the disciples were asking the same question. I'm not a betting man, but if I was, I would put money on the disciples being the ones that were most surprised at Jesus telling Matthew, follow me. Can you imagine? These guys lived in Capernaum. Matthew was a tax collector in Capernaum. How many times had this man extorted them? How many times had they seen him and seen the oppression of the Romans against their people? They had grown up believing that he stood for their enemies, that that he had betrayed them, that he had aligned against them. This is who Jesus was supposed to come to overthrow. He was supposed to set their people free. They didn't know yet that Jesus is coming to be a spiritual savior and not a political one. This is who Jesus is supposed to help them defeat And here their teacher, their friend, the guy they had just started following, is calling the enemy into their fellowship? What's going on here? Is is this real life? Like, what have we done? Who are we following? What, What is going on? How uncomfortable do you think that dinner at Matthew's was? 
You've got the tax collectors and sinners all totally comfortable in their element, enjoying this feast and enjoying or engaging with the teacher, this new guy, this incredibly interesting character. I would imagine that Jesus was enigmatic and and able to engage with these men and women seamlessly. And so for them, this party's happening, man. Like, this is great. And then you've got the group of the first disciples. It's not 12 of them yet. According to the Gospel of Mark, there are only four. I looked into it. We don't know exactly at what time each of the 12 joined the fellowship, but we know for sure that there were at least four at Matthew's feast, and probably not 11 at this point, but even if it were 11, it would likely be that 11 men were furiously reevaluating their life choices. Their hearts are very likely echoing the question of the, of the Pharisees, what is Jesus doing here? What are they doing here? He can't possibly be intentionally recruiting Matthew, can he? Doesn't he understand the implications? Doesn't he know how uncomfortable this is going to make things going forward? Doesn't he understand the history? Doesn't he care about the hurt that has been inflicted upon them by this exact group of individuals? What is going on here? As I sat this week working through this text, working through the surprised response to the two words of Jesus, follow me, I wondered which group I identified with more. And so I pose that question to you. Can you identify with Matthew? The sinner who doesn't understand why God would call you into relationship with him whose past is marked by failures, who doesn't feel worthy, who is incredibly aware of your sin, embarrassed by it, but unable to leave it. For it has served you. It's it served a purpose. Do you, do you feel like you wouldn't be accepted by the church, by the family of God, if they knew your sins? W- would they feel betrayed that they were sharing a pew with you? Would they gladly accept you into their fellowship? Maybe you could identify with the Pharisees. We may not be Pharisees philosophically, but are we Pharisees practically? Do we live our lives in such a way that we rub shoulders with, eat with, drink with, converse with the lawless, materialistic, compromising degenerates in our lives, or at least adjacent to our lives if we haven't let them in yet? Or have we sheltered ourselves to the point where the vast majority of our interactions are with people who think and live the way that we do, that value what we do? How do we look on those whose sin is so obvious to us? How would we look on others should we find their sin out? Practical Pharisees look down on those outside the church, but they will also look down on those inside the church. Do we scoff at those who have a hard time departing from tradition? Do, Do we villainize those that have a hard time accepting change? The Pharisees had a set of rules that they lived by, and they applied those rules to others. Have we done that? to each other? Can we identify with the disciples, caught up in the crazy, uncomfortable with the scandalous grace of God, unsure as to how we fit into this whole picture, struggling with what our expectations are and what God's mission actually looks like, trying to reconcile with the reality that God has called those that have heard us to join in Christ's fellowship? Which one are you? Kind of a trick question, isn't it? For each of us or all of them. We are each Matthew, aware of our sin, shocked at God's love and bewildered by his call. 
We are each the Pharisees, opinionated and dismissive of those who think and feel differently than we do, that operate contrary to our convictions. And we are each the disciples called to follow Christ alongside people we struggle with, alongside people that have hurt us, but that God loves and has called us to love just the same. And as we sit in the reality of that, I can't get over how much I love the answer the Pharisees receive. Though it does not come from those to whom they ask the question, but from the one who truly has the answer. As we read in verse 17, On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. The disciples did not know how to answer, but Jesus did. And though that answer was directed to the question voiced by the Pharisees, it also answered the question being screamed by the hearts of his followers. He did not come for the healthy, for the righteous, but for sinners. And though they may not have picked up on it in that exact moment, my goodness, what a statement. Jesus didn't come for the righteous, but for sinners. And Jesus came for all, so that means that all must be sinners. With one statement, Jesus levels the playing field and puts us in recognition of our need. With one statement, he groups everybody present in the room, the tax collectors, the Pharisees, the disciples, into one group, not not the separate groups that they would prefer. He doesn't put them in, in tiers of those who are more healthy than others. He creates two columns, the righteous and the sinner. And as we read in in Psalm 53, 1-3, and as those in the room should have been well aware, King David writes, God looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. Everyone has turned away. All have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Man, we struggle with that, right? Like, we we fight against that. Like, Pharisees, we, we want there to be tears, man. We want want some to be able, and by some I mean us, by their actions or at least their intentions to be able to move our way out of that that sinner tier, right? And into the higher one, closer to that, that righteous tier. But that's not something Jesus allows. He says there are sinners and there are righteous. And that's a blow. Like that's gonna rock some people, particularly the Pharisees and the disciples. Tax collectors, yeah, they already know which column they fit in. But the others had been hoping that they had maybe moved up a bit. So like, this hurts. I wonder if they could hear the gospel in this statement over the sting. For he says clearly, I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners. Christ has come for those in the sinners column. Christ left the utopia of heaven to come down and live in the brokenness of earth for us, for all of us. And so when he taught, it was for us. And when he healed, it was for us. When he did miracles, it was for us that we might trust him, that we might believe in him, that we might have faith in him so that we could believe that when Jesus was betrayed and when he was convicted to die and when he took that cross up that hill, it was for us. It was for us that he carried not only the timber, but the unbearable burden of the sins of the world, our sins. And that as the nails went through his hands and his feet, and as he was lifted up, and as he hung there suffering and dying, it was for us. And that when the Bible tells us that he became sin there that day, that he took all the sin of the entire world upon himself, that he did it for us. 
And then when he was forsaken by God, he was forsaken for us. And when he died, dying for us. How could this be? We just walk through how broken we are, how much we fail as individuals, and how much we fail as a church, how much we can sometimes struggle with each other and the mission that God has called us to join him on. How could Christ have done so much for those that are so broken? Church, I join you in the question and in the awe that comes from knowing how undeserving we are and yet how great the love of our God is. That he would do all of this for us even though he knows us, especially because he knows us. And that is fantastic news for us because our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ did not stay dead. But he rose from the grave, defeating sin and death. And when we believe in him, when we trust in him, when we rest in the faith that he has given us, then all the promises he has made to us become ours. We receive the benefits of our forgiveness. We are clothed in righteousness. We are brought into the family. We have hope for eternity, a hope that will not disappoint us. This is why Jesus came. This is why he died, that we might be brought into the family of God through faith. What a fantastic promise for us sinners, for the blocks of marble abandoned in the cathedral yard, the block that everyone had given up on, the block that had too many imperfections to fulfill the purpose it had been intended for, created for, until one day another sculptor caught sight of the flawed block. But as he examined it, there arose in his mind something of immense beauty, and he resolved to sculpt it. For two years, the artist worked feverishly on that work of art. Finally, on January 25th, 1504, the greatest artists of the day assembled to see what he had made of the despised and rejected block of marble. Among them were, and I'm going to butcher these names, Botticelli, Leonardo da Vinci, and Pietro Peruguino, the teacher of Raphael. And as the veil dropped to the floor, the statue was met with a chorus of praise. It was a masterpiece. The succeeding centuries have confirmed that judgment. I, I did have to edit it a little bit. I wasn't about to <laughs> expose David to everybody else. So we got a, little, got a little editing going on there, but that's okay. Michelangelo's David, man. This is one of the greatest works of art that the world has ever known. Now the veil has not dropped on us yet, church, and the Holy Spirit will be working on each of us longer than Michelangelo worked on the statue David. But one day, when we are gone from this life and have been brought into heaven, the veil will drop and God's workmanship in our lives will be revealed. He sees in each of us what Michelangelo saw in that flawed block of marble. He sees a masterpiece, and he is tirelessly working at each of us shaping us, sculpting us to be who he has called us to be, a journey that does not happen overnight. Like Matthew, the tax collector, called into fellowship by a God who loves him despite the life he had carved out for himself, who lived with men that despised him but came to love him, and who would one day write the first book of the New Testament that all might be blessed by the call of God on their lives. But unlike the statue of David, we do not hide behind a veil before God sends us into the world for his purposes. We may want to be statues, but that is not what we have been called to be. I love the story of Oliver Cromwell, who once ruled England. 
History records that during his rule, the nation experienced a crisis. They, they ran out of silver and could not mint any coins. Cromwell sent his soldiers to the cathedral to see if any silver was available. They reported back that the only silver was the statues of the saints, to which Cromwell replied, melt down the saints and get them back into circulation. And church, that is what God does with us. He melts us down and he gets us back into circulation. That we might proclaim the good news that has saved us. That we might repent of our being Matthew or the Pharisees or the disciples. And that we would turn to him and be used in his mission. That, we might, that he might speak through us as he approaches through us the lost in our lives. And uses our mouths to call to them, follow me. Follow Christ. Follow the one who loves you so much he died for you. Follow the one who sits at your table and eats with you. Follow the one who points out our flaws and our failings and calls us to repentance. Follow the one who has forgiven us. Follow the one who has sent us. That as we follow, we would call others to follow. Are we ready to be in circulation, Calvary? For that is where our God has called us to be. What a fantastic, glorious, merciful, and loving God we serve. Amen.